0: Hello, my name is Philip Miriton, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking. Exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves. Unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution, to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now, here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Heaven at the End of Science,
1: Philip Meriton.
0: The standard interpretation of the book of Genesis is that Adam and Eve are in a perfect garden somewhere. They do something wrong, such as eating the fruit from the wrong tree. God banishes them, and the rest of history is to try to figure out exactly what went wrong in that garden and how we get back to it. Some view this story as real history, others as myth or fantasy, but the story is there and one of the greatest ever told. Today's guest, Glenda Lee Hoffman, however, has a different interpretation of Genesis. She's the author of the new book, The Genesis Code Your Key to Unlocking Hidden Genius. So, on today's show, we're going to take a different approach to understanding the book of Genesis, and we're going to try to understand how we unlock that hidden genius. Welcome to the show, Glenda.
1: Hi, Philip. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Well, as I said, I wanted to do a show on the Kabbalah because a lot of people have heard about it and probably don't really know what it is. And I think your book has a nice, fresh spin on this. So let's start things off by just talking about what is the
1: Kabbalah? Well, in Genesis, Kabbalah is the code that the text is actually written with. There are several different types of Kabbalah. um, As I'm sure people know who have ever tried to look it up, there's Kabbalah spelled with a K, and Kabbalah spelled with a C, and Kabbalah spelled with a Q, which is the uh, Kabbalah I studied. They're all similar, but I don't know anything else I don't know much about the other Kabbalahs, which are based on something called the Tree of Life. The Kabbalah I studied and that Genesis is based on has to do with it, their connection, its connection to the letters, so called letters of the Hebrew alphabet, which, in terms of the Kabbalah, do not represent anything linguistic or anything to do with language. They are flame symbols that represent patterns of energy.
0: Well I think that's really the sort of different mindset that one has to take when reading a book like yours or getting into this Kabbalah in that we are so accustomed to looking at written symbols as having a linguistic meaning but where you're coming from, where Kabbalah is, is that these are really as you said flame symbols or or senses of energy can you elaborate upon that a little bit, what, what this energy interpretation is or what this really means?
1: Sure. First of all, a lot of times mathematical symbols don't refer to numbers. They refer to some type of energy or uh, some, type of, some type of transitional uh, pattern. So in math, numbers don't always mean numbers. They may mean something else, so the the Hebrew letters, which we recognize as letters letters in the context of the Kabbalah, have nothing to do with the Hebrew language or linguistics in any way they are it's actually a science, and like every good science, it's written in a code
0: well that's that's interesting, but I think. A question that came to my mind is who gave the code meaning?
1: This, um, first of all, it, it's recognized that the first person in history to understand this code was Abraham. And the reason Abraham is attributed this is because his name includes the code. In other words, he was named Abram, then his name became Abraham, and the reason is because he added the letter He, which is the fifth of the alphabet, of U- Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, He, he added that letter to his name, and in the uh, symbolism of the Kabbalah, that letter refers to the life of universal energy, and the specific type of universal energy that it's talking about is the ability of life to self-organize. So, Abraham recognized, uh, he wanted to signify that he understood this language, so he added this letter to his name. So,
0: this is what, I, this is what I'm trying to get my hands around here, my, my brain around, which is that somebody must have it, uh, come to the conclusion that the original Hebrew symbols had a deeper meaning than just linguistical.
1: Back in the, um, you know, 2,500 years ago, 3,000 years ago, these symbols actually were referred to light, which is where the flame part of it comes into, because flame is light, and light is energy. And the whole uh, holiday of Hanukkah used to be referred to, and perhaps still is in the the Hebrew tradition, the Festival of Lights. And these letters were actually pictured as little flame images. So back long ago, and anyone who studies the Kabbalah, this form of Kabbalah, still recognizes this association between these symbols and energy, which is, the term is used as light. I see. Well, what's
0: what's really cool here is that, you know, one way to look at these things is either you think that they're they're just sort of make-believe or there's some meaning to it. And we wouldn't have this show unless we want to give things like the Kabbalah the benefit of the doubt, because I do think that there's truth here. A lot of us are raised believing that the Bible was written through the inspiration of God, that there's that there's a deeper meaning in the words of the Bible. Now, maybe not every word, but when you get to the book of Genesis, I don't know if there's ever been a book that's been interpreted in more ways, and interpreted by more people than the book of Genesis. So what you seem to be saying is that, that is, that's, that's really true that these words are inspired and in fact they have a deeper, richer meaning than just the linguistical symbols.
1: Oh yes, way deeper right. and way more profound. In fact, um, the easiest way to understand how this is a coded text is to realize that every single word in the Genesis portion which I studied, was, which is only Genesis 1 through 4 up to verse 16, and that is the two stories, the story of the six days of creation and the story of the Garden of Eden. That's all I studied, yep. uh, and I continue to study that, and I've read that section probably 10,000 times. Yes. So that's the only portion of Genesis I'm talking about, and that section is definitely coded, and the easiest way to recognize that code is to realize that every single word in that section of Genesis is not just a linguistic word that we can actually look at and think of linguistically, but it is an acronym. And it, the acronyms are formed exactly the way modern acronyms are formed. That is, the first letter of a word is used um, in a group of words to convey um, a much bigger package of information than just a single word it's like they're it's like they're bound up
0: uh sort of vessels for a hidden meaning but the hidden meaning yes but the hidden meaning is not sort of it's not just like a message like thou shall be good but but there is a sort of an active energy to them and i think it might help here to give an example because i know in your book you talk about the um and the b-a-y-t the bayat bait. 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 Bait.
1: i i say aleph and bait okay so i was pretty close <laughs> and somebody's gonna say i butchered that i'm okay, sure okay because...
0: okay but i think it might be helpful to give an example here for those who have never sort of studied up on the kabbalah on on how one sort of drills down and then finds like a whole new world of meaning once you start unwrapping these symbols. So why don't you give right. an example?
1: So first of all, all of these letters are related. They, uh, the, the system of Kabbalah to, uh, in studying it is uh, an interrelational, completely holistic system in that every element is related to every other element in an infinite number of ways. And that's the way it conveys reality because that's exactly what reality is. Reality is a bazillion elements all related to each other because they all start from energy, the energy that holds atoms together. That's the kind of first hurdle you need to get over in understanding this um, system. So Aleph is the first symbol and it is the birthing symbol that births all the rest of the symbols. So Aleph is the energy of eruption, disruption, uh, some people say chaos. Um, it is the uh, instigating energy of the universe. And I, the, the model that's used in the study of Kabbalah, especially in Genesis, is the model of a seed and in the model of a seed, Aleph would be the germ, because the germ is the active, living, growing element, and Aleph is the energy that instigates that uh, life, so to speak. Yes. And they, I,
0: okay. Okay. I just want to pause here for a second and say that you know what what uh, what Glenda Lee is saying is is common to virtually every system of thought, whether it's science, philosophy, religion, because you need to have something to to move. To You need to have a burst of energy, right? You need yes, to have something exactly. happen, whether it's the Big Bang. And scientists there have still never explained where that burst came from. And, and of course, I don't think they'll ever, ever explain that. And, and remember Aristotle, who set the tone here for a lot of this. Aristotle, the famous Greek philosopher, had this notion of the, of the prime mover. The prime mover uh, was, was, is an entity that is sort of, begins it all. Aristotle, yes. he couldn't, he couldn't ex- explain where motion started, so he attributed it to a prime mover. I just want to I just want to say that because because what uh, Glenn Lee is saying is not something that is that is not that does not have its analogs in science or philosophy. That was my point. Sorry for interrupting you, but no,
1: that's fine. You're exactly right. And uh, the 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 classical definition of the purpose of Aleph is exactly what you say. It's unknown. It's it's not verifiable. It's a complete mystery. It's beyond time and space. It's unthinkable, and yet it exists. It's there. Right. So, this is like a first postulate. Right. Then, bait, the second letter, and this is where we get the word alphabet, aleph bait, alpha beta. Um, Bait is the energy of the husk, it is a containing, uh, static, continuous element that never changes that's protective in nature and that uh, encapsulates Aleph so that Aleph doesn't just explode into nowhere and dissipate
0: well and that's that's a great I mean just think about this for a second there has to be a form of some kind. A container of some kind. Otherwise all you have is light. All you have is energy. Un- all you have is energy. Undispersed. Exactly. It's like it's like you know the sun rays without an earth. You don't, yeah, you, don't exactly. you, know, you don't really have uh, something to embody the energy. So, exactly. so so this is sort of pretty cool. And so why don't you continue and I'm sorry for keep interrupting, but I, I think that what's important here is to understand where this is heading, which is that we're take we're taking a different spin on the same phenomena that has been explained through science and spirituality and religion, but we're sort of going a little deeper here into the code of the Bible. So, uh, so, so Glenda, why don't you continue? You were talking about these two opposites. The, the pulse, so,
1: in right. every letter, and uh, I keep trying to call them symbols, but I get caught up in letters. So in every one of these flame symbols, in every acronym, which we perceive as a word in Genesis, in every sentence, in every verse, in every chapter, in every story, and I'm speaking only of these two stories, uh, in Genesis 1 through 4, this model of the disruptive germ and the containing husk is at the center, is always there in one form or another, because this is the basis of everything that is created. This, this is, that's, disruptive germing energy and this containing static energy.
0: So that's so, like, this,
1: so this is a model that underlies everything in these two stories.
0: This is Philip Merton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, We're talking with Linda Lee Hoffman, the author of the new book, The Genesis Code, Your Key to Unlocking Hidden Genius. And we're talking about the hidden code within the book of Genesis and how this code can be used to understand not only what the book of Genesis may really mean, but also how we can broaden our awareness and unlock that genius, which I'm looking forward to figuring out how that's going to happen. But <laughs> but let's let's okay now. Using these two, and the, and these are opposing forces. Is that is that right? Oh
1: yes, they're always opposing forces. The whole point of wholeness is that the integration of opposing por- forces is the essence of creating wholeness. If you can't integrate opposing forces, then how can you get anything done?
0: Right, right. And again, this is so fundamental. I mean, what what comes to mind, and I hate to keep bringing up these esoteric philosophers, but people that get into the basic uh, ingredients of life— or of existence, there's there's the German philosopher Hegel who had this thesis, antithesis, and then a synthesis. In other words, uh, there were opposites that sort of transcended and made a new thesis. And without opposites, without a I and a Thou, without two things sort of conflicting, it's hard, I think, to build a world. But uh,
1: that's Again. exactly what the Kabbalah says. Exactly, no. and uh, I'm glad you're bringing up all these <laughs> philosophers because I didn't study them, and well, they're I'm, verifying everything I learned. Well,
0: I'm bringing this up because the the exciting thing here, and I'm just not making this up, but the exciting thing here is that is that, you know, we have a tendency in today's uh, culture, and I'm just going to say this, that we tend to marginalize things like the Kabbalah. Things like New Age or spirituality, we tend to we we tend to separate some of these fields from what what really is true, and and I think theosophy would be another example where we where we say well that, those are nice pursuits and go and go to your own building somewhere your own rooms so and you could study those, but the point and I think what we're seeing in today's sort of um, rising uh, spirituality or consciousness is that. We're seeing sort of inroads of these fields into modern ways of thinking, and that's what I think is so important here this is not this is different, but it's not so out of bounds that we can't find a way to in, to integrate it into other fields so
1: yeah in those. fact uh, i I consider my role to be one that um, I'm attempting to make the Kabbalah. Not only accessible but practical.
0: Right, right, right. And I think that that's that's very important. Now let's talk a little bit about. Okay, so we have these competing forces, and and this 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 explains a lot. Why don't you give an example, maybe a practical example? While while well, the human body. Okay. <laughs> okay. Shoot.
1: Just think of the muscular system. The whole muscular system is based on two opposing forces. One set of muscles moves one way and then the other set of muscles moves the other way. And it's how they integrate together that allows us to move in a coordinated fashion. Or think of the the rods and cones in your eyes. They they function in opposing manners, but because they're integrated, we see in a uh, three-dimensional perception that allows us to interact with the world in uh, coordinated motion.
0: Yeah, and I think that it's pretty—it's pretty hard to come up with anything where there isn't a conflict, or the or where there isn't
1: uh, yeah electromagnetism right right Uh, DNA is a spiraling opposition of these four ingredients that are all that are their qualities are opposing each other or ionic. uh, integration. You have negative ions and positive ions. It, no matter where you look in nature, you're going to find these opposing forces synthesizing.
0: Now, there, there must have been something in your background, and I have read your book, so I understand um, your your background, but why don't you tell the listener what what it was in your life that sort of made the the light go on, and, and made you realize that there is this deep truth in the coded symbols of the book of Genesis.
1: So, uh, like everyone else, I grew up in a culture that believed in dualism, and it confused me to no end. I did not understand it. I was continually hurt by it because of the actions, the cruelty of others, and I was desperate to find some clarity. Now, at five years old, (laughs) I, I don't know how I understood this. I can't even remember any memories of being five except for a few, you know, I began kindergarten and all that, but I did have this very profound experience of a voice that spoke to me from a fire. And the joke I like to tell is, well, Moses had a burning bush. I had a fireplace. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's, that's the modern Uh,
0: version of the, of the burning bush. Yeah. And, and the voice, I'm I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead.
1: The voice said to me very clearly, things are not what they appear to be. And at five years old, I had no idea what that meant not a clue but it certainly got my attention and the voice wasn't just a voice there was a a feeling of eternity with this voice it was like I had slipped into a different dimension it was that dimension I was searching for because it was a dimension of wholeness and I could feel it it had this uh, comforting healthy vibrant Energy around it that I I recognized as yes this is this is what I've been searching for so that happened when I was five and uh, I had no idea what to do with it I certainly didn't tell anybody about it and then when I was eleven I had a very extensive profound visit with uh, Jesus I'll just say it Jesus. It could have been anybody from Buddha to uh, Ramana Maharshi, depending on which culture you're raised in. I was raised in this culture. I had gone to church. Jesus was what I was familiar with, so that's how it appeared in my experience. But the experience was one of very non-religious. Basically, Jesus showed me how the world worked and how energy infiltrated everything, But what I was most struck by was his perception of life that allowed him to understand that there were answers to every question, that there was hope in every situation, that nothing was lost or limited. And I just realized that because of his perceptive ability, he had this peace of mind and wisdom that was unmistakable. And even at 11, I recognized that I wanted that for myself. I wanted to have that kind of consciousness. I didn't want this to just be a single visit, miraculous visit, that I would look back on the rest of my life and go, oh, gee, gee, I wished I could have that again. I wanted it for myself. And I actually asked in this vision, whatever you want to call it, opening, I said, teach me to see the way you do. And then it was over. Boom. Uh, So, and again, I didn't tell anybody about this because I instinctively understood to keep it close to my heart. And so these two incidents, I didn't realize until I was in my 40s, planted a seed of intention in my subconscious and that intention I learned later was a desire for clarity. That was my driving force. And that desire for clarity led me to the Kabbalah, which I had no idea I was looking for. Yeah. A, a friend simply plopped the book in my hand one day. It was a book titled The Cipher of Genesis by Carlos Fores, And in that book, he shows how Genesis is a coded text And his method of revealing it and through my own methods of studying it uh, taught me that this was true because I had an unmistakable experience of it after I had been studying for nine months.
0: You use the term dualism, and I think it's important for you to define what you mean by that term for those who maybe aren't following... um, what meaning you're giving to it.
1: Dualism to me is the idea that we are separate from others, from God, from life, um, that everything we see is separate because that's how it appears to our senses. Right. Uh, And yet underlying this appearance of dualism is a profound, deep unity. Right. Right. And I
0: I want to... Give the listener another spin on dualism. It's consistent with what Glenda Lee just said. The classic dualism is the separation between mind and matter, or between the the inner states, these ephemeral spiritual states, and and stuff. And Descartes, the the uh, 17th century French philosopher, is attributed with Coming up with dualism, but dualism means as well a separation between uh, not only the mind and matter, but it also implies a separation between us and God, uh, us and other people, us and the and the earth. And if if anything, uh, you know, our modern culture, our modern development here is showing that that is false. That there really isn't a dualism, and I think that in many ways, this this development that we're on the spiritual development is, is showing that 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 is that there is unity, and I think that things like quantum theory and other findings of science are leading in the same direction. But so I, I just think it's important to define that term.
1: Yeah, and um, you know the scientists, uh, especially the neurologists, that are uh, adhering to this. Do not refer to the mind and brain as separate anymore. They call it mind brain or brain mind because they recognize that there is no separation between those two. That energy and matter are working together constantly, especially in the brain.
0: Yes, and you know that's a whole other topic, uh, uh, neuroscience. And I know you you talk about neuroscience in your book a little bit. And it's a, it's again, it's a really really fascinating topic, and there's something called the hard problem of consciousness. The hard problem being how consciousness, this mysterious spiritual awareness, arose from dead stuff. (laughs) You know, it really, it's the hard problem, And, and, you know, there is a solution to that problem, which is that, this is my own solution, by the way, which is that scientists have it backwards, that... Uh, consciousness did not arise from the brain, but the, ra- but the brain arose from consciousness, and that's probably also, that's probably no, cons- you got it right. That's probably consistent with the with the eastern with the eastern view. But but, uh, Glenda Lee, you're you're lucky because you're one of those people that have had these experiences, the voice in the fire, this encounter with this mysterious spiritual person, whether it was Jesus or Buddha or whoever. And, you know, a lot of us who haven't had those experiences, you know, say, well, gosh, you know, I wish I, I mean, I always say, wish I would have had one of those. But, but, uh, what was it about that, that really drove you to the Kabbalah?
1: Well, at the time I didn't know, but let me back up for a minute because I want to refer to the comment you made about, uh, matter and energy and, and how the, the scientists are saying well how did consciousness arise from matter and the reason they say that is because they're coming from the position of matter and they don't they can't figure out how matter moves into energy if they were coming from the position of energy they'd be able to see it simply right. because underlying all matter is energy energy is the unifying force in the universe, universe, and once you understand energy and realize that at the base of all matter is energy, in other words, atoms, electrons flying around neutrons and protons, then you can make this leap and realize that matter and energy have always been united, and there's never been any separation except in our own perceptions.
0: This is Philip Miriton, and this is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. We're speaking with Linda Lee Hoffman, the author of the new book, The Genesis Code, Your Key to Unlocking Hidden Genius. And we've made a transition here where Einstein comes in. And I think that I appreciate your doing that segue for me because, you know, Einstein, the, the most famous equation of all time that everybody... Has heard about, which is E equals mc squared, energy equals mass times the speed of light squared, the the equivalence of matter and energy. You know what, Glenda? You know what? The, one of our problems as as a culture is that we have not applied that formula to ourselves.
1: Exactly. <laughs>
0: you know, it's really <laughs> amazing, that, Go ahead. I
1: No, that this is the story in Genesis. The yeah. story I learned from Genesis is how to do that.
0: Right. Right.
1: And so then I want to go back to uh, what you asked, which was can we get back there?
0: <laughs> sure. So, what was it about your spiritual encounters that led you to the study of the Kabbalah?
1: Well, uh, this is, I didn't realize this until the 40s. Now, I studied the Kabbalah when I was in my 20s. Okay. And it wasn't until my 40s, I was in my 40s, that I began to understand, well, why was I drawn to the Kabbalah? And, Why did I stay with it when it was so frustrating? Because for the nine months that I studied it, I didn't understand a word. I mean, nothing. And yet I was obsessed with it. And I didn't understand that obsession. Because I understand that when others don't have the experiences I have, they wouldn't have that obsession. So they wouldn't be able to stick with it. So they wouldn't get the result of it. So your question is very profound. What I realized is that those two experiences that I had as a child planted a seed of intention inside me. about. But that didn't seem to matter at all to the growing, moving, alive awareness that was hidden inside me. The seed worked, whether I knew it or not, because the minute my friend put that book in my hand, I was hooked. Though I didn't know it. Yeah. It's and a, yeah. I, the, the st- I, I, I liken the experience to Helen Keller and Annie Sullivan. Only I'm both people <laughs> in my. I, I'm playing the, the Kabbalah is playing the part of Annie Sullivan. And I'm playing the part of Helen Keller. Because it doesn't make any sense to me. Helen's scribbling all this. I mean Annie's scribbling all this stuff in Helen's palm. And she could care less because it's meaningless to her. And she's resisting it and fighting Annie, and she's trying every possible way to get away from there. And that's exactly what I was doing. I'm studying this book. I'm writing out all the formulas. I'm looking them up in the concordance, and I'm getting nowhere, and I want to just burn it and throw it away, and it won't let me. It just keeps coming back to me and sitting me down and making me go over it again. Now, how do I say that that happened? you know, I'd wake up in the middle of the night and go, you know, if I just go try that one more time, maybe, maybe something will happen. Yeah. And then this went on and on and on. And finally, after five months, I realized, geez, you know, this stuff is so complicated. I'm going to have to really narrow my focus. focus. I'm just going to, I'm going to study one word, which is an acronym. And it was the first word in Genesis, which is composed of six letters, Beit, Resh, Aleph, sheen yod tav so for 4 months <laughs> that's all i did wow. study those four six letters and i mean i was just beside myself with frustration and i you know i would i would dream about it at night and i would think about it during the day and i would try to get my mind wrapped around this stuff and there's just i just would hit a wall every time And, and, you know, I felt like I was banging my head against that wall.
0: Well, don't you feel like this has been your calling? I mean, between when you put it together, (laughs) I mean... Now
1: that I, yes, now that I can look back to the whole path, I realize, well, duh, duh. yeah, (laughs) it was definitely calling me. But, you know, when you're in the midst of something like that and you're in the unknown... And you're confused about everything anyway. You don't recognize a calling. You you just recognize your own anxiety and confusion and frustration.
0: Yeah, it's and a... that's
1: where I was until until that moment. Yeah, I'm driving down the road and explosion. I mean, my brain just exploded. It, I I I use the story. I explain it this way. I say. It felt like giant hands came out of the sky, grabbed my two hemispheres of my brain, ripped it open, and the whole universe flowed in instantly. All of it at once. That's how startling it was. Yeah. I mean,
0: yeah. When you uh, that
1: experience, you, and, and it's like a near death experience, it's there, you're in it, it's inexplicable, it's completely mysterious, you have no idea how to think about it rationally, but it is unmistakable.
0: Yeah, I think that when I read that passage in your book and when you just said it, it's the kind of experience that, of course, some people could uh, disregard, but it, but it rings true when, when some fundamental insight comes to you. It, it it would it has to be like that because if it has that kind of deep impact it's as if we're reunited with something basic and and that that's an exciting thing now
1: yeah you... exciting it was so exciting yeah yeah well it's, it's pretty cool i had to to the side of the road yeah. because i was going to kill myself yeah. if i tried to drive down the road with this stuff going on in my brain yeah okay
0: so let's put this together a little bit because you know, we have the Kabbalah, we have the these deep symbols of energy, sort of dualism being uh, destroyed. We have the pulse in the container. You, you came to a conclusion that the Garden of Eden story is not really about two people in a garden. It's really not taking place in real time, but it's something else. Really? Right,
1: so when, uh, after studying the Kabbalah for a couple of years and mm-hmm. really getting this pattern of the inner germ and the outer husk being the model for wholeness, uh, my perception switched. And all of a sudden, I could see that everywhere. I could see it in the earth. The earth has a, um, a protective Uh, atmosphere and it has this inner surface on the land that is completely disruptive because plants and animals and uh, bacteria and viruses are just growing all the time. I I also saw it in the brain. The brain has the, uh, the soft tissue of the brain itself which is constantly growing new neurons and then the hard shell of the skull, protecting uh, the, this all this dynamic growth that's going on in the brain. So I began to see this this pattern everywhere, this model. And one day I looked at Genesis and I went, "Oh my gosh, it's right there in the stories. the 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 story of the six days of creation is the oh, and you know, I by that time I had realized that the essence of these two interacting opposites is inner and outer, the, the germing disruptive energy is always inner, the containing uh, static energy is always outer. So when I looked at Genesis, I realized that the story of the six days of creation is really the outer story of evolution. It's cosmology. It's our evolution. It's the story of our evolution. So it begins with the void. Then it goes to the big bane, which is the, and God said, there will be light. And then it moves to the earth because this is our story. And the earth was void. And then it separated into the firmament and the atmosphere. And then the firmament was covered with water and then plants and then animals. Then us, male and female. There we are. There's evolution. Didn't happen in six days. That's a fallacy. Uh, In the teaching of Kabbalah, we're taught that. Those six days define the first six letters.
0: Hmm.
1: And it also, uh, that first story includes the story of the principle of indetermination or the freedom of indetermination, which defines the purpose of life in the universe. And that purpose is to produce as much possibility or potential as is possible through this model of the inner... Uh, disrupting element and the outer static element, which is exactly what you see in a seed. A seed is the embodiment of that model. So that's all in Genesis 1. Then, and, And in Genesis 1, all the imagery in Genesis 1 is very normal and natural. And The sun and the moon, the darkness and the light, the trees that produce fruit, the animals the plants, the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, I mean, everybody recognizes those. Nobody's not familiar with all those normal elements. But you get to Genesis 2, 3, and 4, which is the story of the garden, and those are not familiar elements at all. you got a man being created from dust, a woman being created from his rib, and this talk of a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I mean, where are you going to find that tree yes. in any kind of normal setting? So I'm looking at all this, and I'm going, and I know this pattern of the opposites in the inner and outer, and I, and suddenly, you know, Just like that big epiphany, that big awakening, I go, this is the inner story. This is not about the past. This is about our awareness. The first story was about how our body was created, how our brain was created. This second story now is moving inside the brain. It's going from outer to inner, exactly like this pattern has been showing me all along. It's not continuous, these two stories. The Garden of Eden is not in the past. It's now. It's here. We're in it, all of us.
0: So what does the story tell us about ourselves?
1: Well, first of all, it tells us that those trees of knowledge, they're all in the brain because where else are you going to find trees of knowledge? Right. The word dendrite comes from a Greek word that means tree. And, and all the trees in Genesis, these trees of knowledge, uh, are represent the neurons in our own brain. In fact, scientists um, use the metaphor of our brain being a neural jungle because of the intertwining of all the hundred billion neurons that are there. And neurons happen to be structured like trees. They have a central axon that's similar to a trunk. Then they have all these branches that lead to dendrite. Each uh, neuron in the brain can have up to 30,000 of these tips and I describe this in the book as imagine an oak tree in winter devoid of all all of its leaves and what you see is all these branches that branch and branch and rebranch and rebranch till you get to all the little tips and if you look at if it's a mature oak tree you can imagine there being 30,000 tips and then but that isn't the end of the tree. The roots go down and they form a similar system of all these branching roots that end in these little um, little fragments that move into the soil and extract the nutrients from the soil. So the tree is extracting the branches are extracting nutrients from the light and the air and the, all the gases that make up the air. And the soil is extracting nutrients. I mean, the roots in the soil are extracting all the minerals and the water that's in the soil. And all of this is going together to help the tree grow. Well, in the brain, the neurons are are, exacting, are acting the exact same way, only they are connecting to each other. Each of those 30,000 dendrites from one neuron is connecting to 30,000 other neurons uh, at up to 100 billion, and all the information that our brain processes travels through these dendritic connections. Okay. So, well, okay.
0: Well, that's that's a that's a mechanical description of maybe a corollaries that are occurring in the brain, but you're saying something deeper than that. You, we're what what you seem to be saying to me is that there is this unlocking of awareness. Of of a of a broader capability, more potential uh, in in the mind through this process. It's not just. I mean, maybe to me, frankly, the brain sounds like a metaphor for this activity. But your book is about unlocking unlocking the genius inside of us. And is this part of it? Is this part of the process right here?
1: Well, certainly, because once you realize that. Uh, And scientists, by the way, scientists referred to the quality of the brain's ability to change as neuroplasticity. Because what the Kabbalah taught me in 1970, which I couldn't get verified by science at that time, was that this quality that was defined in Genesis 1 as the freedom of indetermination, which is the life's purpose to create as much potential as possible, is present in the brain. The human brain is the most fertile uh, agent of possibility in the known universe in that all of the neural connections in the brain can switch. They can switch in a moment. Every time we have an epiphany, that happens. A neural pathway switched and went to another direction, and we perceived something in a completely different context. It's sort of like those Um, images like the most famous one is it looks like a candlestick and but uh, it can also be the profile of two faces looking at each other you know what I'm talking about
0: right right right.
1: so when you perceive that uh, the first time you perceive that you can see that image in these two different ways you can never go back to seeing it as just one thing your brain has has become flexible enough that it now perceives both images simultaneously and i that is simply a little tiny example of how the brain can change its perception and we experience this during epiphanies all the time whenever you have an, ep- an epiphany whether it's large or small whenever you go oh aha that's what that means your brain has created a new neural pathway it's moved from an old perception to a new perception that you hadn't had before and it it does that by creating a new neural pathway through a new neural connection or by actually growing a new neuron and adding it to the network that's already there. And by the way, the scientific term for growing new neurons is neurogenesis. Well, let
0: me let me try to give you a, a different interpretation of what you just said in a second. This is Philip Merton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. We're speaking with Glenda Lee Hoffman, the author of the book the Genesis code your key to unlocking hidden genius and we're talking about getting that hidden genius unlocked right now now you have been framing this as as opening up neural pathways I think another way to express the same point and maybe this is your your multiple perspective is I would frame it as knocking down conditioned beliefs or or knocking down barriers or breaking down those containers that that you were talking about earlier that the it's really two separate ways when you put it in the language of neuroscience we're talking about neural pathways plasticity etc etc but to me it it's much more real and much more understandable if if we simply if you simply say you you got rid of a mental block. Something opened up to you. Something opened up, and now you're seeing the world more clearly. It's- in
1: fact, what you just said is the exact process of life continually, eternally, and everywhere, and including in the human mind. The, the, something grows. We may not know it's growing, and it's contained in a container. And then at some point, it grows so much that it bursts through that container, which is what you were referring to, knocking down a barrier. And what, but then what happens after that is that our awareness builds a new container to contain this new perception, which will eventually grow and knock through that container. And this process goes on forever, and that's how our genius is tapped. Because we simply keep expanding our awareness through every previous container until we reach a place where we know that everything is unified and we live in that unity.
0: So you're saying that by interpreting the Kabbalah in the book of Genesis, that it leads to this result that life is about knocking down these barriers to to unlock the the hidden genius, is this the connection?
1: Yeah, because uh, life is always in a process of expansion and the psyche creates these containers or barriers so that in the beginning when we, when we have this new idea or this new epiphany it's protected a bit from all the old conditioning that it came from but then after a while after you get used to that you want to grow some more so you you start pushing against that container again, and you push long enough, and you're going to push through it to get to a new realization.
0: Okay, and, so okay, so and, this, over, and uh,
1: over and over and over.
0: So this means that those who are looking to find the new Garden of Eden or heaven outside somewhere that they're looking in the wrong place.
1: You bet. Okay, so it's inside, and Jesus said that kingdom of heaven is within you
0: and so i mean this is this is sort of uh it, where things always sort of tend to come back to which is that the main battle is always the battle in your own mind oh yeah and, and once and you know if consciousness is primary or if the mind is primary which i think more and more people are figuring out is true then then in order to improve the world, we necessarily have to overcome ourselves and our own doubts, our own mental blocks, the own barriers that are separating ourselves from others. You, you say a lot, uh, you talk a lot in your book about what our potential is and about where this leads. And I like to go to the optimistic front here and sort of have you just talk a little bit about what this means for human evolution if 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 we start embodying some of these principles in our daily lives where where this leads
1: so our human brain is actually a tool for us to attain what in the past is or even in the present is called enlightenment or satori or there's a lot of names for it uh... Nirvana. mysticism, yeah, but to me it's simply clarity. To me, and you, in, in the interview that I listened to with um, Marjorie Johnston, you used two words that are so dear to me, and they were mystery and honesty. First of all, you can't grow without honesty. If you don't get really honest with yourself and your own beliefs, you're never going to grow. It's that self-honesty that pushes us into new territory, Uh, especially when it comes to questioning authorities.
0: And I think that, okay, so now, now we are sort of taking ourselves out of this Darwinian trajectory. And the Darwinian trajectory for me is that we are a outcome of the random mixing of particles through a, purposeless um, process of natural selection. We have somehow wound our subs uh, to be occupying these apparently perfect vehicles called the human body. and and But we're really not here for any purpose. We're really just fighting for survival. Uh, there is no higher goal in life. That's a Darwinian trajectory. Uh, and, right and, 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 and so but you're but now but the beauty of what you're saying and others have said but you're saying in a different way is that that's not the right trajectory is that right
1: uh, that's exactly not the right direct. that's that's the trajectory that you perceive through the husk right
0: right the, right
1: the, the trajectory you see through the germ is that no our purpose and, and I learned this in Genesis in the 1970s I learned this from the Garden of Eden story our purpose here on Earth is to awaken our own brain, is to activate it and activate all the potential growth that already is hidden in there. That's our hidden genius. It's personal growth. It's so that we learn to question everything we've been taught and we learn to think of our mind as a tool that we can use to explore not only life, not only culture but most importantly our self. The, the human brain which has this added tissue called the frontal lobe uh, which is where all human awareness takes place has the ability through the frontal lobe to look into the older parts of the brain which by the way we inherited from everything that came before us. The frontal lobe has the ability to look into those more static areas of the brain and go you know what the, the, the reasoning in those parts of the brain are really old and outdated, and I need to you know, put in some new software here. First of all, if you don't do that, the strongest neural chemistry in the brain is fear. It's, it's the oldest neural chemistry, and it was designed to help us survive. But now, as humans, we have another purpose, and that's to become more aware and to become more loving we are the most social creature on the planet and the ties that bind us to each other are trust and love but if we don't develop those within ourselves, how can we possibly develop those with other people and once we develop love and trust to a certain degree they actually are stronger than the old neurochemistry of fear and that's what we're here to do that is our purpose yeah that we- i think
0: i think that's re- i think that's really well put and i want to emphasize something here that i think is so important and that is i mean uh we were both uh we were both and most people in this country were raised in the western religious tradition and that tradition uh the standard approach is that we we pray to a higher power of some kind and we we try to convince this higher power to drag us along and to make us better people. And if we feel if like we pray harder, if we um, worship better, that it's going to improve the current state of our being. What you've done by looking at the foundation document to the Western tr- uh, religious tradition is that this journey is really an inner journey. It's really a a Battle of conquering yourself and and here I think we see uh, Western religion uniting with the Eastern approach Eastern religion being a inward journey as well and I think this is really really good because as you said a couple minutes ago you know Jesus Christ was the one that said the kingdom of heaven is within you and I I think we've forgotten that lesson big time
1: yes and you're right um, the the idea that we are all on a journey towards clarity towards enlightenment, towards love it, this is the hum this isn 't even a spiritual journey this is a human journey yes and this is the journey we are all on because this is the journey that pr- puts our frontal lobe where it 's supposed to be in charge instead of having the older parts of the brain in charge which that's where all the information of fear and um, praying to a deity outside of ourselves who's going to either punish us or reward us all that comes from these older parts of the brain that don't know how to think any other way but they're not even engaging the frontal lobe Uh, so i learned about the frontal lobe even though i didn't know the name of it or what it was doing, but I learned that there was such a thing through the imagery of Eve in the Garden of Eden story, because most people don't recognize this, but in the Garden of Eden story Adam is given a commandment, but of course it's been interpreted all wrong, the commandment was to eat of all the fruit of all the trees in that garden. Then the next sentence says, but if you eat from the the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. That's not a commandment. That is a statement of consequence.
0: And I think uh we've we've quickly come to the end, <laughs> Glenda Lee, and before I ask you to just mention your website, I just wanna point out that again what what I try to do in the show is, is to show lines of convergence to this rise in consciousness, this evolution of spirit and again to me the Kabbalah as interpreted by Glenda Lee Hoffman in her book is showing another line of convergence by looking at the code in the book of Genesis we're seeing that the main battle we have is an inward battle to break down the barriers between us and other people and to break down the barriers between us and the possible ways we could improve ourselves this is an upward this is an upward journey and i think uh again the beauty of this is that we see a whole nother line of analysis leading to the same conclusion Uh, glenn lee thank you very much why don't you quickly uh tell people how to find out more about you and your website
1: my website is www.thegenesiscode.com you can go there. You can. Uh, there are links to some other interviews. There will be the link to this interview as soon as it's uh, available. You can purchase the book, uh, you, the Genesis Code, Your Key to Unlocking Hidden Genius. You can also purchase it on Amazon and in Kindle edition. Um, I have an upcoming teleseminar in January, if you're interested in that, and you can also uh, enter your email and you will receive a free copy of 10 techni- uh, excuse me, seven techniques to cultivate your genius. Philip, it's been fabulous talking to you. I'd love to continue this conversation. <laughs> yeah, well,
0: that's that's what happens when you don't believe the time is real. It just flows It just flows right by. Uh, thank you very much again. This is Philip Merton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.
1: You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion with Philip Miriton.
0: To find out more about Philip and his new book, The Heaven at the End of Science, visit heavenattheendofscience.com.